Hello and welcome to the Researcher Podcast, your regular look at the research that's making waves in the scientific community and the people behind it. My name is Joe Fenton and I will be your host today. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Justin Holbert from Bard College. Justin is alongside Professor Michael Anderson, the co-author of What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Stronger, Psychological Trauma and Its Relationship to Memory Control. Today, we'll be finding out a bit more about the paper and the person behind it. Justin, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So before we get into your paper, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your academic career so far? Sure thing. Um, so I was raised in uh, New Jersey in the United States, and uh, I found my way into a wonderful uh, scholarship opportunity, which gave me a full tuition scholarship to the University of Pennsylvania, thanks to the Walt Disney Company Foundation. Once at Penn, um, I really wanted to get involved in research in any way possible. And the best way that I found uh, to get my foot in the door was to start up at uh, the VA Medical Hospital doing some data entry. And uh, while that did give me a lot of insights into the way that data can be managed and just how complex it is to get the numbers from pieces of paper from participants into a computer system, a way to actually analyze the data, it didn't really give me the uh, complete picture of the research process. So from there, I moved on to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, just a short trip down the road, and quickly became involved in about four or five different research labs over the course of my undergraduate tenure. And while I continued to amass a lot of experience, I kept um, all of the uh, previous opportunities and research going, which allowed me to get a better sense of my own direction, where I wanted to uh, move forward throughout my own academic career. Um, that led me to apply for the National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellowship. Uh, at the same time, I was applying to graduate programs at the end of my undergraduate experience, and I was fortunate enough to receive one of those fellowships, as well as an opportunity to work with Michael Anderson at uh, the University of Oregon, where he was based at the time. Two years into my PhD program there with uh, Mike, uh, he moved over to St. Andrews in Scotland, uh, which again gave me uh, an incredible opportunity to uh, check out a very different PhD program in uh, Scotland. So I started up as a first-year student in Scotland, went through um, their uh, own criteria for uh, progress in the PhD, and two years later, uh, I had to move again after uh, my PhD mentor moved over to Cambridge. So I basically had a whirlwind tour uh, throughout my PhD process. Uh, gave me an opportunity to not only see the way that different research uh, training programs work, but also gave me uh, the ability to build up a laboratory alongside of my fellow graduate students who made all the moves with me and my research mentor, uh, Michael Anderson. So by the time uh, that I finished up with my PhD, uh, I had a lot of insight as to how I wanted to set up my own lab when that would eventually come. But before that did come, um, I made a move back to New Jersey, uh, where I did my postdoc at Princeton uh, under uh, Ken Norman, um, who runs the computational memory lab there. After a number of years working with Ken, I accepted a faculty position at Bard College. It's a liberal arts college in New York's Hudson Valley. 
And uh, I've been there for about three years now and uh, had uh, the opportunity to take a sabbatical, which is where you'll find me today. I'm sitting in uh, Stockholm, uh, just settling into my sabbatical. So you just said that you traveled around a lot with your PhD following Michael Anderson. Is this quite common practice for PhDs to move to universities where their PhD supervisor might be at that moment in time? Um, depending on where the individual is in their training process, um, it may be more uh, likely that the person would stay back, say, if they were uh, just at the point of writing up their dissertation. When Mike moved, I was uh, still in the formative years of my PhD, and it seemed to make a lot of sense at that point uh, to continue my training with him rather than starting over under the supervision of somebody else, which may have necessitated my um, starting over with a, a very different research plan. Um, so for me, it seemed to uh, work out rather nicely. For others, uh, they made different decisions. Uh, in Mike's own lab, he had one graduate student who was just reaching the point of writing up his dissertation, and that graduate student actually stayed back at the University of Oregon to complete his PhD rather than uh, making all the moves that we did. So not quite usual, um, but I think the PhD process is so uniquely tailored to every individual's experience um, that it, it's hard to say what is um, the standard course versus um, something a little more atypical. Sure, that makes complete sense. Talking to some PhDs, obviously they move countries and move universities to be with a particular supervisor. I've never really considered the the fact that people will actually move countries and universities to actually be closer to the supervisor for their PhD. Okay, so for those that may not be familiar with your particular work or your area of expertise being trauma and psychology, could you give us a brief overview of the paper that I mentioned in the introduction? Sure thing. Um, so... Students enter college with a wide variety of life experiences, and those life experiences help shape and prepare them for some of the challenges that they'll encounter both in school and beyond that. Unfortunately, statistics suggest that many of those experiences could be characterized as traumatic in some way, shape, or form. And while these traumas are no doubt uh, awful, we wondered whether previous exposure to certain types of trauma, at least, might actually have the ability to enhance future resilience by training individuals to more effectively cope with a wide range of unwanted memories. So to test this, we asked two sets of college students to memorize a number of arbitrary word pairs, like street, violin. And after establishing that they had learned those word pairs, they were prompted to repeatedly suppress, that is, push out of mind some of those memories. And so, for instance, uh, they might be asked to push out of mind uh, violin whenever they saw the word street presented on a computer screen. We call this the think-no-think -think task. It's something that um, I continue to use in, in my lab, something that uh, Michael Anderson and colleagues developed a number of years ago. And it turns out that those individuals who self-reported relatively more early-life trauma demonstrated a greater ability to forget the memories that they were prompted to not think about. 
And these results held even when they were given money to correctly recall those suppressed memories. So it really did seem as though they had difficulty accessing the memories that they had previously established, and that this had some relationship, some bearing on the extent to which they had experienced trauma prior to coming into the laboratory. Furthermore, it held for both negative and neutral memories, um, neither of which were really designed to have anything to do with the participants' actual lives. These results are consistent with the idea that individuals with relatively higher levels of life adversity are better able to cope adaptively with a wide variety of new memories, perhaps thanks to the opportunity to practice those coping abilities in the wake of trauma. So overall, these findings suggest that there may be some truth into the old adage, uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, and that traumatic experiences, again, I want to emphasize these traumas are, are horrible, but they may naturally contribute to the adaptation of cognitive control skills, thereby improving memory, many survivors' later resilience, at least in those who experienced only moderate levels of trauma and are not predisposed to post-traumatic stress disorder. So obviously this paper is based around trauma, and trauma, as you have stated, is horrific. So how did you measure this adversity or trauma that you were studying? Sure. Um, so there are a wide variety of ways of assessing people's life adversity, um, and uh, while no way is able to fully capture the totality of the event itself along with the experience without disrupting the individual's life um, on a day-to-day -day basis, we took uh, something that was available to us called the um, Brief Betrayal Trauma Inventory. Um, and this is a 12-item inventory that simply asks people to estimate the number of times they had experienced a wide variety of life traumas. So those may include natural disasters, um, accidents such as automobile accidents, industrial accidents, uh, deaths of uh, close uh, family members, friends, um, and uh, alongside of this, um, some more uh, intimate uh, types of uh, trauma such as relationship trauma, sexual assaults, and the likes. So we were trying not to be very intrusive and uh, request details that were not necessary simply to establish the general um, amount of trauma history in the individual's lives for a number of reasons. One, just out of sensitivity, we didn't want to probe too much. Uh, we didn't want to have that information uh, retained. Um, and uh, while we make every attempt to keep our records as secure as possible. We just didn't want those uh, sitting around to the extent that it wasn't necessary to address the uh, general interest that we had in the relationship between overall level of trauma exposure and uh, memory control abilities. But the other uh, important reason that we chose uh, not to uh, address uh, specifics about those uh, traumatic episodes was because we didn't want individuals who participated in our experiment to guess what um, the experiment was all about. We told them the full nature of our study during the debriefing phase, but we didn't want to uh, give in to demand characteristics or in, in introduce other forms of biases while uh, the participants were partaking in the actual think-no-think -think task. So we adopted a more uh, generalized approach of uh, capturing 
in uh, broad strokes the level of trauma that people had been exposed to without getting to the specifics of those individual episodes. Okay, so you mentioned that you capture and measure trauma in generalized broad strokes. And in your piece, you talk about two distinct trauma groups, so a high group and a low group. Without breaking any kind of ethical codes on this piece, could you give us an example of an adverse or traumatic experience that would separate or differentiate somebody from a low group and a high group? Sure. Um, so the way that we chose to operationalize um, our level of adversity or trauma experience was simply by the number of estimated uh, episodes of trauma. So that might mean that somebody who had experienced a rather major trauma, um, say the death of a close family member, um, would have been uh, on the same level, uh, according to the way that we were coding up the data in our study, with somebody else who um, had been in uh, uh, an automobile accident and uh, everyone survived that accident. So we didn't actually separate the individuals into groups based upon the severity of uh, their trauma experience. It was simply on their reported, self-reported uh, total number of uh, incidents relating to trauma. And obviously that has some drawbacks. A future direction uh, would be getting a better sense of the nature of the trauma that uh, participants have been exposed to, as well as the timing of the trauma. So whether they experience them at sensitive periods in their lifespan development. But our uh, initial hypothesis was really based on uh, this notion that Regardless of the type of trauma one was exposed to, it is those opportunities um, when confronted by reminders of that trauma uh, that would give people the ability to practice this cognitive control ability. So it may be that what is more important than the uh, underlying severity of the trauma is just the overall number of uh, traumatic episodes a participant had been exposed to. Uh, obviously, there is further work that would need to be done to establish whether or not that uh, this is the case. In terms of specific examples, the uh, only information that we're really able to provide uh, is uh, based on the breakdown of responses to the uh, trauma survey. Um, so we did have individuals uh, reporting uh, that they had experienced one or more episodes of uh, sexual abuse, of uh, natural disasters, of um, uh, deaths of close family members uh, and friends. Uh, so we really didn't probe beyond that. Again, uh, for reasons as mentioned before, uh, we, we didn't want to uh, push people uh, too far beyond their comfort zone in the context of the experiment so that we didn't um, retain those data. And um, we also didn't want to uh, make the link between the two elements overly clear to our participants in a way that could potentially lead to demand characteristics. So in your piece, at the end of the first experiment, you say that the experimenters could, in principle, have been unintentionally influenced in their scoring by the participants' trauma status. Could you give us a little bit more of an insight about this at all? Sure. 
So uh, participants, after going through the think-no-think no think paradigm in experiment one, then completed that trauma survey. The uh, experimenters who were conducting this study uh, then uh, took the uh, forms that the participants had completed and were able to quickly summarize in their heads, perhaps, the overall level of trauma associated with the individual that they were running. If those same researchers then went back to the computer and uh, started coding up the verbal responses from the final test of the think-no-think no think paradigm, let's say that there was an, an ambiguous response, something that uh, perhaps might have been coded as correct by some researchers or incorrect by other researchers. If the experimenters, one, knew uh, the uh, group to which the participant had been assigned, that is either high or low levels of pre-existing trauma history, and they had some sense of how they wanted the results to turn out, let's say that they wanted to find uh, the expected relationship between high le higher levels of trauma and increased memory control, perhaps that would influence the uh, way in which they coded up that ambiguous response. Now, of course, we train up our uh, research assistants and the people coding the data um, to be um, uh, high-minded when doing this and certainly not to uh, give in to those potential biases, but we're all human. Um, so in experiment two, we took the extra step of blinding all of our experimenters. So the experimenters didn't know uh, whether the individuals coming into the uh, room for the study were uh, those who had experienced relatively more trauma or relatively less trauma. And similarly, for the people coding up the results, uh, they didn't know the uh, participants' uh, trauma history either. And importantly, we also tried to uh, distance the, uh, the connection between the trauma survey and the experiment that took place in the laboratory in the eyes of the participants as well. So for the second study, we administered along with um, another of other research groups at the U University of Oregon, uh, a massive survey to um, mostly uh, students in the introduction to psychology courses there. Uh, they completed all of these surveys, which included the trauma inventory. And then many weeks later, we invited some subset of those uh, individuals to the lab for a purportedly independent experiment. So the participants coming in uh, through the door had no reason to suspect that the experiment that they were about to participate in had anything to do whatsoever with uh, the way that they responded on that trauma, trauma inventory weeks prior. So your pull for the experiment were taken from undergraduate students of psychology. But if you were to have selected participants from a different pool, i.e. soldiers, policemen, firemen, those that experience a higher amount of traumatic events on a more regular basis, do you think you would have got different results or possibly even more fine-grained results? Great question. Um, did just want to point out that some of our undergraduates actually were returning war veterans, um, as well as people who um, have side jobs as uh, medical professionals, uh, EMS uh, service members, and uh, uh, people who fight fires as well. Um, but it is also the case that the individuals who were able to make it into the college sample from uh, which our results were based 
uh, are individuals who have displayed uh, no small amount of resilience in the fact that given that they had traumatic experiences earlier in their lives, they still made it uh, through a rigorous selection process to get into college and uh, even beyond that, were uh, willing and able to come in to participate in our experiment. Um, so it is uh, a, a selected sample of people that may not reflect the broader population of individuals who might experience uh, quite a different set of circumstances and different uh, types of traumatic experiences in their lives. Uh, were we to uh, sample from that wider population, um, my expectation is that we would see not necessarily the linear relationship um, that uh, had appeared in our current data, but perhaps uh, something more non-monotonic, a, a U-shaped function in the sense that individuals with extremely high levels of trauma experience uh, perhaps would uh, show an impaired ability to control their memories. And this is something um, that Mark Siri and others have been exploring in longitudinal studies, um, looking at uh, people's cumulative life adversity and the health outcomes uh, associated with those same individuals. And they find that while moderate levels of um, adversity of trauma tend to be correlated with better types of control, both in real life and in the laboratory, people with extremely high levels of trauma um, might not be able to do that, um, perhaps because those extreme levels of trauma uh, become toxic, um, even uh, wearing down important regions of the brain that help control memories, as well as memory centers themselves, like the, the hippocampus. Okay, so moving away from the academic side of this podcast and more towards the impact of the piece and the publishing of it. What was it like to work with Professor Michael Anderson on this piece, especially with the distance and the time zones involved? How did it affect the process of writing and publishing? Sure. Um, so uh, the writing of uh, this paper uh, was affected by differences in time zones, but in some ways that worked to our benefit because by the point that my day uh, would be wrapping up, I could send this off to uh, my collaborator and then he could start working on it while I was sleeping and, and vice versa. Um, of course, for Skype meetings, um, that became slightly more complicated to try and find times that were workable for the both of us. Um, but as a consequence of moving around uh, with Michael Anderson uh, during the course of my graduate study, uh, we got quite used to this. Uh, in fact, uh, after moving over to St. Andrews in Scotland, um, I was still uh, managing a research group of uh, undergraduates at the University of Oregon. And I recall uh, having to uh, Skype in around 2 a.m. Uh, a number of times in order to uh, match the only lab meeting time that would work for those individuals. So it forced me to uh, become a little bit better at scheduling my time, um, but certainly not without the complications. 
moving around from one institution to the other uh, also affected uh, the data collection and data handling process. We had to make sure that everything um, had transitioned over uh, with us after moving institutions. Uh, and that was uh, one reason why we helpfully had those undergraduates still working at the University of Oregon, so that if uh, we needed something coded up, um, they would be there to, to help us out with that situation. So obviously the whole idea of the cycle going to sleep and then the other person working on it is the only practical way to accomplish this. So with this continuous cycle and without, you know, dropping Professor Michael Anderson in boiling water, was there any conflict between the two of you over which direction to take the piece or over the writing style? Sure. Um, so... Mike has been at the game far longer than I have and has an amazing ability to uh, write uh, very persuasively and speak very fluently on the topics that have been uh, of utmost importance to his own research career. As a relatively uh, new academic in the field, that's still taking me a little time uh, to get my head out of the weeds um, and be able to uh, think at all levels. Um, so there was a bit of back and forth, as you probably can tell from just our conversation. Uh, sometimes my uh, verbiage uh, travels in loops, making it a bit more difficult to unpack. Um, but I think that's actually a, a useful thing to have two authors, two or more authors work at the same time so that um, the uh, low level details and the bigger picture, uh, there, there's um, uh, a tension between getting uh, each one of those aspects uh, transmitted into the document itself. And eventually it ends up at this uh, perfect meeting point in the center. So pushing this perfect meeting point forward and into the realms of wider academic circles, what responses have you had so far? Um, so obviously there's a lot of interest not only in the field of memory generally, especially with aging populations across the globe and people sensitive to the frailties of their memory performance, given how central memory is to defining who we are, to uh, basic survival skills, finding uh, where we had left our food, finding our keys, finding our car at the end of the, the day, um, but also the uh, the relation to trauma, given the high prevalence that is striking to many people. Some reports indicate that um, even undergraduates, 80% um, or more of them may have experienced rather significant traumas in their life, just up to the point of entering college. Um, so given the prevalence of trauma and given an interest in trying to find ways to increase people's resilience to an ever-changing and, uh, in many cases, quite challenging world environment, uh, there is a, a great deal of interest both from the public and uh, from researchers in trying to move this work forward. Since publishing this paper, uh, I myself have heard from a number of individuals who reached out with their own stories of overcoming trauma um, and putting that to good use and being able to um, uh, effectively manage other uh, challenging situations that they had come to face in the years since. Um, but of course, everybody's situation is unique. And our goal at the time, as 
well as our continuing goal, is to try and, uh, as best as possible as researchers, set aside some of these um, individual uh, components and look at the population level to first establish whether there is a general linkage between these two factors, uh, trauma exposure and memory control. And then once we have a better handle on that, start reincorporating some of the individual differences um, that might allow us to better predict Say individuals who go on uh, to develop post-traumatic stress disorder might be less able to control their memories versus others who might have a predisposition to um, being better able to control those memories. And somewhere in between, perhaps allowing people who are starting out from, say, a weaker point of memory control to build up those skills. And that type of training need not come through trauma experience. We wouldn't want to just throw people into traumatic situations that uh, they may not be able to handle, but perhaps we could have more benign training processes at our fingertips that um, could build up some of those practical skills. So what are the biggest issues that you are currently facing in your research area at this moment in time? Sure. Um, so I think some of the uh, major challenges to this study have just been um, the lack of insight that we have as to the specific nature of the types and timing of the traumas that people had um, reported on that inventory. So a natural next step might be to include a bit more of that documentation, again, without disrupting the uh, lives of the individuals who are so generous uh, as to provide uh, their experiences for our research. Um, because so many of the studies that are out there uh, currently um, are correlational in nature, as is ours, uh, that still leaves us with the problem of discerning directionality, that is, whether the uh, trauma experience precedes uh, changes in cortical plasticity, brain changes, as well as the behavioral changes that we were trying to tap with the think-note-think -think paradigm. So combining these two efforts, we might um, in the future want to take a group of people who experienced a verifiable trauma and then uh, track them longitudinally. That way we would know the um, on-the-ground uh, nature of that traumatic experience and uh, we would have a better sense of whether the brain changes and the behavioral changes followed the trauma or they came into uh, that situation with uh, some of those differences that led to uh, better or worse abilities to control uh, intrusive memories. So I think getting our heads wrapped around uh, the experiences, both objective and subjective, of our participants uh, will be a, an important next step for this type of work. So obviously yourself in this paper deal with memory and trauma and adversity. As we talked about before, some of your students have experienced extremely traumatic events. So with this in mind, were there any difficulties getting this paper published at all, especially with these ethical backgrounds linked directly to it? There was a lot of back and forth with our reviewers who, uh, in some cases, uh, were coming from more of a clinical background uh, than others. But in the end, I think that actually served our paper and our ability to communicate the potential importance of this work um, uh, in, in a much uh, wider scope. 
I say that because there is uh, this general sense uh, that clinicians and clinical researchers uh, commonly believe that suppressing unwanted thoughts and memories is actually a rather maladaptive coping response to trauma and uh, is associated with worse overall mental health outcomes. But we're arguing and uh, we, we try to make the case both to the reviewers as well as in the paper uh, that this potentially overlooks the potential adaptive benefits of suppression. So to take one example, exposure therapy um, is thought to be effective because it encourages patients to stop avoiding uh, unwanted memories and confront the associated reminders until they become somewhat less distressing. And this may sound at odds with our own approach, but we can reconcile these two accounts, I think, by highlighting a distinction between avoiding reminders, which doesn't necessarily build the coping strategy that we're talking about here, and suppressing the underlying memories after directly confronting the reminders. And that's what we're asking participants to do in this experiment. So they still have to look at that reminder on the screen and at the same time try and prevent the unwanted memory associate uh, from flooding back. And that seems to be the type of practice that perhaps gives rise to better generalized coping abilities in the future. So we believe that um, training retrieval suppression might actually augment the benefits of cognitive behavioral therapy by enabling patients to confront reminders and redirect their thoughts. Um, so through this conversation that we had uh, during the review process, I think we were able to come to agreement um, that we're actually not arguing for two different things. Uh, we're uh, really uh, coming together at a certain point, recognizing both the challenges and the potential adaptive uh, benefits that go along with traumatic uh, situations and uh, really just have a drive to understand the best way for individuals, uh, be they patients or uh, non-patients, to, uh, to adapt in those uh, circumstances. So obviously you've moved from St. Andrews to Princeton to Bard College, and now you're on sabbatical in Stockholm. Could you give us a little insight into this life and lifestyle? Sure. It's uh, all still very new to me. Um, so I've just been in Stockholm for a week and yet to start up at the uh, university where I'll be spending my time uh, working with a research group on a series of experiments looking at odor memory. Um, but uh, a little bit later on today, I'll be hosting a lab meeting over Skype uh, with my research group at Bard College. So just trying to get the practicalities of that all worked out has been um, taking up a lot of my time. Other practical things um, that I knew about coming into my sabbatical but are being made a bit uh, more clear in actuality just come down to being able to say no when uh, requests come through email, especially at odd times uh, of the day, given the uh, time change. Um, but I, I want to make sure that I am still uh, being available to uh, my students back at the college, to the uh, colleagues in the psychology program over there, as well as administrators, while still preserving uh, what the sabbatical is meant to do, uh, giving us a bit more time to focus on uh, research. Uh, so that's a balancing act, and I can't say that it's one that I've mastered yet, but it's only a weekend, so I'm hoping to still make strides in that direction. 
Okay, so throughout your whole academic career, who for you has been the most influential person? The notion of memory suppression or repression, I suppose, has been around for a really long time. And of course, Freud popularized that notion, but his techniques simply couldn't establish the effectiveness of the proposed response. Um, so it's taken a while, but I think we're now uh, coming to the point where we have the behavioral and imaging techniques to take a real critical look at the question and test the causes and consequences of attempts to control unwanted memories empirically. And that's the, the thing that I want to underscore here is the empirical approach to, to doing so. Uh, the, the Freudian connection, I think, comes along with a lot of baggage. Um, and um, it is for that reason that I think it is uh, incumbent upon us to uh, keep a, a skeptical mind in exploring these things um, and really do our due diligence uh, in order to nail down uh, the uh, relationship that we're looking at. Uh, but in many ways, I think that um, uh, Freud's work, uh, given the popular notions that uh, he gave rise to, is something that has been influential in the development of my own work. Um, in terms of this particular research project, Mark Seary at the University of Buffalo has been doing a lot of great work looking at factors linked to coping abilities in the face of potential stressors. And these studies really laid the groundwork for uh, future studies, including ours, linking memory control abilities to those same factors. Do you have any advice or tips or tricks for any PhD students or young academics to increase their productivity? Another uh, line of my research uh, focuses on the influence of uh, sleep in consolidating and uh, transforming memories. And as a sleep researcher, um, I sometimes laugh at myself uh, because I'm given a few other responses uh, to my own inability to follow doctor's recommendations and uh, get as much sleep as regular sleep as I probably should. But I try and impress upon myself as well as uh, my students, trainees, pretty much anybody I can talk to, just how important getting regular sleep can be. And that's a real challenge in today's environment where sleep is very often seen as something to be avoided because it hampers productivity. But in reality, um, it's the sleep that is serving such an important uh, method of consolidating, solidifying our memories, refreshing us so that we're able to take on the challenges of the new day, and even giving us uh, insights uh, by recombining some of the experiences that we had prior to going to sleep in a way that leads to novel thoughts, uh, breakthroughs, and whatever challenges that we're uh, working on. And um, I regularly find that once I do have the opportunity to get some quality sleep, those are the more mornings that I wake up and realize, oh, here's what I should be uh, doing in my next study, or here's a novel analysis uh, approach to take. So I think uh, by spending that time away from the computer, um, that can actually serve productivity quite well. And finally, the last question that we like to ask every one of our guests that comes on the researcher podcast, what would be your one piece of advice for anyone either beginning a PhD or now starting a career in academia? 
To anyone starting a career in academia, I'd really recommend fostering cross-disciplinary collaborations and doing so as early as possible. More and more in order to have one's work reach a broad audience and gain support, it's important to include a wide range of perspectives and uh, emphasize that no single level of analysis is the right one, just as basic and applied research feed each other. Um, so uh, for a very long period of time, um, inhibition at the cellular level was kind of laughed off. Um, but now we have real substantial evidence uh, backing this. And uh, now we're moving into a territory where we're dealing with the same type of tension at the cognitive level. That is where uh, to the extent to which uh, cognitive inhibition uh, can be uh, measured empirically and how that relates to uh, cellular inhibition. So I think it's only by working across different levels anal of analysis and working uh, both in the basic and applied domains, working with uh, clinicians who are using some of this research to, uh, to adapt the way that they are treating some of their patients, that we actually make our research accessible to the general public fundable um, and um, really fulfilling as a researcher because we're able to do uh, the life-changing work that we can. Well, that's all we've got time for today. It's been really interesting speaking with you today, Justin. So thank you so much for coming on. And thank you for your time. It was fun. Thank you for listening, everyone. Until next time. Keep up to date with the most recent academic journals. Researcher is free to download on iOS, Android, and also available on the web.